You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Folks, we are back. We went away for a short time. We didn't know we were away. And so we did about five minutes of radio. We just had a conversation. Yeah, it was great. We just talked to our we just talked with each other, you technical know. Technical difficulties. Uh, oh wow. How technical it may be. Sorry everyone. Hey. But I hope you got some good reflections from Pope Emeritus Benedict while we were gone. Uh what he had to say was probably more important anyway. Yeah, he, he's way smart. He's like <laughs> soup smart. Hey, speaking of being soup smart. Hey, who? <laughs> what who's a soup smart? Today we're going to talk a little bit about St. Thomas Aquinas. Woo! That's what this segment and actually the next segment, we're going to welcome a guest, Kevin Vost, on in the next half hour. But for this half hour, it's just Chris and I bantering back and forth on the life of St. Thomas Aquinas. And so I gave a theology on tap not too long ago. Um, here in Aberdeen on the life of Thomas because I think a lot of Catholics know who or like recognize the name Thomas Aquinas. Maybe your church is named after him or the Newman Center or something like that. Um, so a lot of Catholics have a sense that he's an important character in the, the life of the church but may, maybe don't know very much about his life or yeah. what he did. So let's dive into some of that. Some of that. Get it? Ah, some of that. Give me some of that. Okay, so who is Thomas? Thomas lived um, in the 13th century, born in 1225. And what's going on in the 13th century in the church is uh, it's kind of the height of Christendom. Mm -hmm. So you can think about the church is sort of robust in the West. We're about 300 years after the schism East-West and about 200 years before the Protestant Reformation. Right, so in the West, the whole church is Catholic, right? And we're very much intertwined politically with uh, the life and the wealth of the Catholic Church um, with the political entities at the time. So uh, on one hand, that might be good, but on the other hand, what it led to was a lot of corruption in the church, uh, especially within the hierarchy. And so in the 13th century, God raises up uh, two religious orders, two men, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic, maybe you've heard of these men, that began the Franciscan and the Dominican orders uh, to sort of revitalize the spirituality side, the spiritual life of the church. And so, and so these two men raise up the Dominican order and the, and the Franciscan order, and they live a life of poverty. And it's within the context of these two orders sort of taking off that Thomas Aquinas enters the scene. And so um, he's born in 1225 in uh, Italy, and he grows up and he studies under St. Albert the Great, and eventually he, order, he enters the Dominican order in 1244. And there's several good stories out there, little anecdotes about his life. Uh, people calling him the dumb ox. Sometimes you hear about Thomas being called the dumb ox. Yeah. Or there's a great story about an angelic cord being wrapped around Thomas's waist. If you're interested in some of those things, I go and Google it. Google the cord of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's a great story about... Uh, a branding iron and things like that. But the, the point, what we want to try to get towards is he was uh, so intelligent that he was placed in charge of uh, forming Dominicans in, in the early Dominican order. First, you know, in Paris at the university level, but then in Dominican houses of studies in Naples, Orvieto, and in Rome. And it's in his formation of Dominican uh, priests that he realizes that what the text they're working towards informing priests isn't up to snuff yeah. in his mind, <laughs> right? And so he says, we need a sum of theology. We need uh, a comprehensive book uh, here 
that I can teach from that will help our Dominican brothers not only learn moral theology, which is a lot of what was happening, but also dogmatic theology, mm. which is, you can think about moral and dogmatic theology as uh, what we believe, the dogma or teaching, and how do we live or the moral life. So, and Thomas rightly understood that dogmatic theology pre, um, presupposes, or moral theology presupposes dogmatic theology mm -hmm. in the correct order, that we have to understand what we believe before we can understand how how we are to live. And so he set about writing uh, his own text that's known today as the Summa Theologiae. Have you ever heard uh, or read some of the Summa, Chris? I have read some of the Summa. It's uh, in my master's courses right now at University of Mary. We read, we read some excerpts. Uh, last year we read a lot about his idea of um, good and evil in the Summa, right? Mm. The, how the actions of good and evil uh, be are justified as such, right? And then a little bit of stuff, like sacramental stuff that he's written in there, um, but not a whole lot. I'm not, a, I'm not the most uh, philosophically oriented person. But yes, I have read some of the Summa. It is interesting, though. It's yes. interesting to read. And it's difficult to read. It's yes. difficult to read for a number of reasons. And why I think this is important, maybe for you out there, um, average Catholic listening to Real Presence Radio in North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, you're like, why would I need to know something about the Summa? And the, the truth of the matter is, and I've got a copy of the Summa here on my, you know, which is great for radio, you can't see it. Yeah. But basically, you can drop it and you could hear the thud. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, did you hear that? Uh, oh, the table just broke. Oh, okay. Think about three college chemistry books <laughs> to get into three volume set, my particular set here. So back you know, for hundreds of years probably, uh, this is really only available to maybe priests or deacons or those studying for holy orders. Uh, one set of this is going to run you several hundred dollars at least. Yeah. Uh, and there really isn't maybe much of a need for the layperson. However, with the advent of technology, you can go to places like newadvent.org or you can go to the Thomistic Institute, which is the teaching arm of the Dominicans on the East Coast, the province of... I don't know, in Washington, D.C., yeah. <laughs> the East Coast Dominicans. Yes. And you can find the entire Summa, the, because it's 700 years old, it's within the public domain. Yeah. And so actually, we, we're seeing in the church today a revival in the interest in returning to Thomism um, from your average lay Catholic, partially because of its availability, that right. anyone can go on, or you could download it onto your Kindle or your Nook or whatever your device is for maybe a dollar, Yeah, you know, just for the, the copyright privileges. So um, when we come back from break, we're going to run to break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the Summa and its structure, and if you wanted to dive into it, where would you begin and how do you start reading this seminal work that is of such importance that we're still reading it 700 years later in the church today? This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. God made you for a purpose. He made you to accomplish some great work. What did he make you for? What were you really made to do? Realize your vocation with a degree designed for the Catholic professional. The University of Mary offers online undergraduate and graduate degrees steeped in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Start today in business, nursing, bioethics, education, counseling, applied theology, and more at catholicprofessional.life. 
This is Father Bo Brown from the Diocese of Duluth. A lot of times, us as, as Catholics, we we struggle with the Holy Spirit because the, the Father is so approachable. He has a name that's very, uh, that we all know, right, that we can relate to, and the Son as well. And when you get the Holy Spirit, oftentimes He can take this, this kind of back seat in our relationship with God. And we see early on in the, in the book of Acts and in uh, the disciples in the early life of the church, we see how they live with the Holy Spirit and they express to us what it's like to live with Him and how He both sanctifies what they do and their ministry and gives them special gifts and also how He sanctifies their own lives and they talk about how the Spirit brings uh, certain effects in their life like joy and peace, patience, kindness, generosity, self-control. So I think it's good for us to think about today. What's our relationship with the Holy Spirit like? Is He a real person in our lives? We have the same kind of relationship with Him that we have with the Father and the Son. Real Presence Radio is available on Google Assistant devices, including Google Home, phones, tablets, and smart displays. To start this action, say something like, Okay, Google, talk to Real Presence Radio. It will then ask what station you want to play, to which you can respond, Play Sioux Falls, or Play AM 970, or Play WWEN. From there, you can use words like Play, Pause, and Stop. Listen to RPR anytime, anywhere, on Google Assistant devices. This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Real Presence Live. I'm Chris Euler. And I'm Thomas Escrow. And we are uh, in the second half of our discussion here of the angelic doctor, right? This conversation that we're having about the great St. Thomas Aquinas, his life, his work, and how you and I can look to him today and understand what he was teaching and apply it to our lives of faith. So, Thomas, tell us a little bit more about this great, wonderful example. Sure. So we left off talking about how Thomas started writing his Summa Theologiae in order to train Dominicans in the 13th century. So in 1272, he begins work on the third part. The Summa is broken into three parts. He had already written the first two parts, and he was halfway through writing in 1272, when Thomas has a mystical experience one day in morning mass, and he's sort of his, um, his assistant, his longtime assistant, Reginald of Paperno, sort of writes about this, and so we know what happened, that Thomas sort of went into a trance during mass. And after mass, Thomas goes back to his desk, Reginald goes back and begins taking up the scribe. You know, Thomas would talk and Reginald would copy down the words to continue uh, writing at the normal part of the day when he would do his work. And Thomas sat there and sat there and sat there in silence. And Reginald prodding him or poking and saying, you know, are we, are we ready to work, Master? And Thomas uh, picks up the summa, you know, all these parchments in front of him and says, all is straw. All is straw. Compared to what I've seen in this mystical experience. And Thomas doesn't write another line of the Summa after that. So Thomas actually doesn't complete the Summa Theologiae. And what does he mean by all is straw? Is that through this mystical experience, Reginald writes, that Thomas had a vision of heaven, of the beatific vision. And compared to the glory of God that he experienced and the wonder of who the creator is in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything that we can write about that is straw comparatively. And so there's a, a, a cool maybe side story that this happened at the beginning of Advent 
which is what we're about to embark on mm. beginning next Sunday, right? Yeah. So it's in the Advent season. So Reginald makes this connection that perhaps Thomas is saying all is straw, as in the straw of the manger that holds the baby Jesus. Mm. Beautiful, right? When yeah. you think about the work of Thomas, the work of philosophy and theology, holding the God-man so that we can behold him in a deeper way. So it's beautiful. So um, Thomas travels then in 1274. Again, he doesn't write another word of the Summa Theologiae. In 1274, the Pope calls him to the Council of Lyons. However, he doesn't make it. They stop at uh, Cistercian Abbey on the way, and Thomas gets sick and passes away at the age of 49. So, uh, that's the life of Thomas. Reginald of Paperno, then, his longtime assistant, finishes the work of the Summa Theologiae and writes the rest of the third part under the same uh, teaching and the way that Thomas had argued from previous works and, and previous stuff. The Summa, obviously a big work of Thomas, but not the only work that he completed. Right. And so Reginald was able to pull on a lot of his other work in order to complete the Summa Theologica. So, let's talk about the Summa uh, just a little bit, because yeah. a lot of people maybe pull up the Summa and it gets really confusing um, because we open it up and we start reading page one, you know, like it's uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or like it's <laughs> something like exactly. that, right? But the problem is the Summa is actually a genre in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So you've heard of literary genres like novels or poetry or things like that, it's textbooks. The Summa is actually a genre in and of itself, and it's a genre that's not used anymore. And so it's confusing for us as uh, Americans living in the 21st century to understand what a Summa is. Yeah. And I'm talking really fast, I understand, but that's there's a lot right. of content to get through. Exactly. And I find it fascinating, so I hope our listeners do too. If right. I find it fascinating, they will too, right? I hope so. Okay, so here's where the Summa comes, <laughs> the genre comes from. I'm fascinated. <laughs> the university system at the time is very new. Higher education before the 13th century, took place only within uh, abbeys and monasteries that were kind of off and apart from society. But at the time of Thomas, around that 12th, 13th century, all of a sudden universities are coming into the metropolitan areas, places like Paris and Rome and Orvieto have these secular universities of higher education and learning. And in the in the levels of the higher education, so not your entry level, but say today's version of a level 400 class and maybe your graduate studies, um, the format of a class would be what's called the quatio disputate. Mm -hmm. Quatio disputate. Or in the other words, <clears throat> excuse me, the question disputed. Yes. The question disputed. And so what would happen is the professor would, um, the master would pose a question of some sort of theological significance, right? And he would d divide up the class into two sides. The yay side, the yes, and the no side. Right, And basically, the yay side and the no side would contrive their arguments for why the answer to the particular question was yes or no. And they would give their arguments, and then they would take a break, and come back and give counter-arguments to what the other side gave. Mm. And then a third time, they would come back, and the professor would outline both of their arguments, both of their counter-arguments, and then he would point out the logical inconsistencies in any arguments that he saw, and his take on the question disputed. Now, Thomas, why does this all have to do with the Summa? Thomas was a master of the quatio disputate. It was his favorite thing to do, <laughs> right? Uh, is to look for where in someone's argument is the logic not consistent or perhaps could be developed further. Where can things be subdivided or put back together? So the Summa is a written form of the quatio disputate. 
The summa is broken up into three parts, and in each part there's multiple treatises made up of many questions. And in each question is multiple articles. And each article is a question in and of itself. So I'm just opening up, um, this would be the secunde secunde, second part of the second part. And it's broken up into many questions with articles in it. So just turning to question 37, the first article, whether discord is a sin. Mm. Okay. And so in a summa, it's going to start with the argument that's not Thomas's argument. Every single time, every question begins with the counter argument, the yes, if you will. And Thomas is always going to take the counter, the no. And so the, if you understand that and you look at um, a question within the Summa, you can begin to understand how to read this in a way that makes sense. And where to, because you don't read it straight through, you got to jump down to the on the contrary section or the I answer that mm -hmm. section where Thomas gives his arguments. And in that light, the whole thing makes a little more sense. Yeah, so he, break it down one more time. It starts with the parts. So there's parts of the Summa, three parts, uh, aptly named the prima pars, or the first part, <laughs> the secunde pars, the second part, and the tertia pars, the third part. Now what's confusing also is the, t the secunde pars is broken up into two parts itself. There's the first part of the second part, the prima secunde, and the second part of the second part, the secunde secunde. So you got the first part, the first part of the second part, the second part of the second part, and the third part. Now, I've, we've got uh, just a few more minutes to discuss, but here's the big picture that I want to get across to people when we talk about um, the, the Summa Theologiae. It's called uh, the Golden Circle of Theology, aptly named by St. John of St. Thomas, who lived a couple hundred years after Thomas Aquinas. What is the Golden Circle of Theology? All things begin in God. So the first part is all about God who is God in his essence or his substance? Who are the persons of God that form the Trinity? What was creation like? What was creation of the invisible things, the spiritual world and the angels? What was the creation of a uh, material world like? So the first part is all about God and his creation and how creation extends God into the material world. Then the second part is all about us as his creation, who is man mm. and how do we return to God through uh, the divine law that's been implanted in our hearts, through things like the virtues, through things like the sacraments and grace. So the second part is all about man and how do we return to God. And the third part is really diving into um, the the, the highest form of man returning to God is the God-man, Jesus himself, God wow. incarnate. And so the third part explores the life of Christ, explores in a deeper way how Christ's life reveals to us the sacramental life in different ways. And so there's this circle. You can think about exiting from God to created world to man and man returning to God, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. Exitus reditus, exit and return. And this is the structure, the big picture, the bird's eye view of what the Summa is all about. Amen. I'm thinking of uh, scripture, 1 John chapter 3. We love because he first loved us. Mm -hmm. Right. So the whole premise of the Summa is founded on the love of God coming to us, us receiving it and returning to him in the various forms, like you said. Mm -hmm. Right. And if we try to put the cart 
before the horse, we try to think about morality without thinking about God and God's love and God's grace. All of a sudden what we get is moralism, right? Right. Or rigorism or, or different things of that nature. We always have to begin in God in order to make sense of what our lives are like so that we can return to him. And why is that important today? It's important today because, um, well, for multiple reasons, I think there's a big return in towards Thomistic thought. Um, you know, Bishop Barron often speaks about beige Catholicism. Yeah. Perhaps yeah. a movement where you can think back to your uh, religious education days or maybe your Catholic school days many years ago. And you can think, I didn't, you know, there's so much more richness and depth to the faith yeah. that I didn't understand. And I wish I would have. So there's a return to say, we need to go back to some of the rich history of Catholicism and the reasons behind things. And the other reason I think it's so important today is because our culture is making arguments based out of an, a non-Christian anthropology or non-Christian philosophy. You can think about rationalists mm -hmm. that say the only thing that exists is the material world, what I can sense with my, my uh, senses, <laughs> no. and not the spiritual world's not real. On the other end of the spectrum, you have romanticists that believe that um, the material world actually doesn't matter. That it's sort of a platonic or a neoplatonic thought that like, I am trapped within my body and my body doesn't matter. Yeah. So to combat both of these sides, we need to be grounded in the church's vision of the human person and of God, which is found in a saint like Thomas Aquinas. Amen. So look to Thomas Aquinas to help us make more sense of our world how we relate to the Lord, how we love Him, and in turn bring people to Christ. So don't go anywhere. We're going to continue our conversation about who God is, how we can relate to God, and Thomas Aquinas after the break. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.